I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth. Well, good morning, Centerpoint, and welcome to a very dark minor prophet. We're looking at the book of Zephaniah this morning, and it is dark. It's not even subdued. It's all about God's wrath. It's all about the coming day of the Lord. It is a dark, dark book. Dark in the sense that uh, God's judgment is coming and that he will do what he has promised to do. In these first couple of verses, we read in Zephaniah that God is going to undo all of creation that he's done. So what do we do with that? I would invite you as we begin uh, looking at Zephaniah this morning to darken your mood, uh, to close the blinds, to dim the lights, to think of your favorite movie that is an incredibly dark and somber movie. But put yourself in a place where you can understand the weight and the heaviness with which Zephaniah is prophesying. Zephaniah was written uh, during the time of King Josiah, which was uh, 640 to 609 B.C. Uh, He was contemporary with Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Nahum. And he's prophesying to the southern kingdom as we look at the darkness and the pain of this book the reality is is that the northern kingdom Israel had already been demolished and taken over and so what's left of this once united nation of Israel is the southern kingdom which is called Judah which has Jerusalem in it and so the major historical event that's coming up is the impending destruction and fall of Jerusalem which occurs in 597, so perhaps 30 to 40 years after Zephaniah is prophesying. The themes, uh, which we'll be looking at today, is Judah's sin, what has brought them to this place. God's response to that sin, his wrath. His ultimate response to sin and his ultimate response to this world, which is the day of the Lord. And then we're left with, I promise you, a glimmer of hope going to ask that you stay in a dark and a difficult place for the majority of the sermon because that's, that's the mood and the somberness of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is not preaching joy and not preaching life, but he's preaching destruction. But as we'll see at the end, these four themes are deeply interconnected and that they build up to this last chapter in Zephaniah chapter 3, which is a chapter of hope. And so, before we begin looking at the prophet Zephaniah, would you join me in a word of prayer? 
Father, we thank you for the totality of your scriptures, even ones that sometimes take us to dark and difficult places. God, we thank you that you are a righteous God, one who executes justice, one whose holiness is above all, and who demands purity and has given that purity to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, help us to receive your word this morning, help us to respond, and help us to trust in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So we began with the first part of our darkness, Judah's sin. And Judah's sin is incredibly comprehensive. As Zephaniah is preaching to the nation of Judah, he says, look, you've done nearly everything wrong. You've done nearly everything wrong, and you've forsaken your God. And we read this in two different sections. First, in Zephaniah 1, verse 12, we read, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are, left, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either bad or good. This is one of the most, to me, the most impactful passages that talks about Judah's sin because he's saying here that Judah is saying the Lord will do nothing. This God who's given them everything, who set them apart to be a light to the nations, they're responding to him by saying that our God is not a God of action, either good or bad. And then we read further of their sin in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one and accepts no correction. She doesn't trust in the Lord and doesn't draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. Here we can see that they've forsaken everything. You can see the totality of their society is just rejecting God. And as we, if you would read the book of Zephaniah, you would see that uh, Judah had really fallen into four key categories of sin. First being pride, that they thought they could live life. They thought they were uh, wiser and smarter than God. They thought that they were uh, exalted above the nations, and so they were pride. Often in Zephaniah, Zephaniah will exalt the humble and show the pride that their end is destruction. Zephaniah also proclaims that Judah had fallen into syncretism, which just means that uh, Judah was trying to blend everything together. They weren't taking the purity of God and the purity of following Yahweh seriously, and they were blending with the other cultures of that time. So they would say, well, let's take a little from here and a little from here and a little from here and just make it all one. Everything's the same. There's no difference. 
They also had fallen into idolatry. They were following other gods. They were following Baal. They were following Molech. And they were following uh, the gods of the stars. They just were chasing after everything. Anything they thought might work, Judah was following. And this last one, atheism, is a summary of that, of that passage in, in chapter 1 of Zephaniah when he says, Our God will do nothing, either good or bad. They were following, or they were proclaiming God to be one who didn't act, who didn't care what happened, who didn't do good or do bad. He just did nothing. Atheism. We, saw, we see here a, a summary of chapter 3 of Zephaniah, where, where Zephaniah is describing the sins of Judah, that, that they're oppressors, that they're rebellious, that they have defiled, that they obey no one, that they accept no correction, that they don't trust God, that they don't draw near to God, that their officials are roaring lions. Now, roaring lions is such an interesting term because often we think of the Lord as a roaring lion in a good way, that he's pronouncing judgment, but here, a roaring lion is bad. That their officials are roaring lion, that they are eating their people and chasing after them. That her rulers are evening wolves. That her prophets are arrogant. That her priests profane the sanctuary. And that they do violence to the law. Friends, Judah was in a terrible place. They were in deep, deep sin. Deep rebellion against the God who had created them and set them apart. So you may say, well, that's great. I'm glad I'm not there. (laughs) But I, I would like to ask us the question, do I identify with any of these? Friends, do we find as we reflect in our hearts that that we are prideful, that we think that we know better than anybody else in the world. Perhaps even we think we might know better than God to tell him what to do. Are we synchronistic? Are we not taking the purity of the Lord and the purity of our minds and the purity of our culture and our hearts seriously? Are we trying to blend things together and say, well, let me draw a little from this and a little from this and a little from this and make what I think is best? Do we find ourselves making idols that take the place of God? Perhaps we don't bow down to an image made of stone or an image made of wood, but perhaps as we examine our hearts, we look and we say there are things there that take place, take a greater place than where God is. Or perhaps we identify with Zephaniah 1.12 that we look at the God of the universe and we say, this is a God who does nothing, either good or bad. So I'd invite you, if you're willing to do so, to just pause for a moment. Uh, pause, the, pause the video and take time to reflect on these four sins. Pride, syncretism, idolatry, and atheism. Where am I at? Where is my heart? Where is my obedience to the Lord? And am I falling into these categories of sin?
So you can pause your video now, and then I'll invite you back magically. And so as we think about these areas of sin, how do we respond to them? In Zephaniah, we see that Judah doesn't, they don't respond at all. They don't care that they keep going along in our sin, in their sin. But we, of course, know that our response to sin ought to be to confess and to repent. Ought to be to confess and to repent of whatever that sin is. Confess both to God, asking for his forgiveness, and then confess to one another, to those close in our life, that they might hold us accountable to do better and to follow God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so as you were reflecting on your life, if you found that, yes, you identify with certain areas of sin, I want to invite you to confess. Confess and repent. And share that with others. Share that with those in your community, those in your family, that they might help you follow Jesus even better. So Judah was brought to light their sin, and they straight up don't do anything about it. And so we continue into a dark place as we encounter the wrath of God. We encounter the wrath of God. And we reread uh, what I read for us at the beginning of our time in Zephaniah 1, verses 2 through 6. The Lord says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every, every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. God's wrath is coming. It's coming on the nation of Judah, and we see it happen when Judah is taken over. And yet, even in view of God's wrath, God's wrath is an invitation both for his wrath to complete itself in a destruction but also for Judah to turn and encounter salvation. Uh, we see this if we remember in the book of Jonah, when Jonah comes to the city of Nineveh and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his preach. It's four words in the Hebrew. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh is only presented with destruction. Jonah doesn't say, hey, you have a chance to turn. He just says, Nineveh, you're going to get destroyed. And yet, what does Nineveh do? They repent. And so we know that in Scripture, and we know that in light of God's wrath, both destruction and salvation were possible. And yet Judah, they don't turn. They don't turn to the Lord in salvation. They're destroyed. 
So, what do we do with God's wrath? We don't like talking about God's wrath because it makes us uncomfortable that, that God would have absolutes or that he would be, that he would destroy anything. God's character is, bo- is complete and perfect, and he's both wrathful and merciful, and he brings judgment and is gracious. They seem to be, they sometimes seem to be competing truths, but that's not, it's just not the case. If God is truly holy and he's truly demanding perfection and righteousness from us through his son Jesus, then judgment and wrath do come. We see this in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That God's wrath is true, and it's right, and it's just. God is both wrathful and merciful. He brings judgment, and he's gracious. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded, and in particular in the Old Testament, we're reminded time and time and time again that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're reminded time and time again that that is the God that we follow. And then we also know through books and passages like Zephaniah that that God will get his justice, that God will execute his wrath on those that have turned away from him and have done the opposite of what he's asked. I think as we consider I think as we consider wrath or, or justice or judgment, I think we think of two, two different things, right? We see injustice in the world, and we say, we want justice in that place. And so we say, God, we want you to judge and to bring justice. And then there's other things when perhaps it affects us or it affects loved ones, where we see them turning away from God or we see them not doing as he's calling them to do. And, or we see death and destruction in the Old Testament. It makes us more uncomfortable where we say, well, we want justice in this area, but we don't want justice in this area because that area makes us uncomfortable. But we have a perfect and complete God who's able to make these judgments and does them perfectly. He's both wrathful and merciful. He brings judgment and he's gracious. Friends, we serve a perfect and wonderful God. One who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from disaster when his people turn to him in salvation. God's wrath was meant to bring Judah to repentance. And friends, God's wrath is meant to bring us to repentance as well. We see this repeated in the New Testament in the book of Romans when uh, Paul is talking about God's kindness in that he's slow to judge. He's slow to anger as the Old Testament reminds us. And Paul is saying, listen, God has shown himself and he's slow to judge. And this kindness is meant to bring you to repentance. We read in Romans 2, verses 3 to 4, So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them, 
and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Friends, God is slow to anger both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And that kindness, that slowness to anger is meant to bring us to repentance. It's meant to show us the character of God and turn to him. We're still in a dark place. One more, and then we get to a place of hope. We've seen Judah's sin. Judah's sin to which they did not repent, did not turn to the Lord. And so Judah encounters the wrath of God. And now we see that Judah encounters the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is perhaps the biggest thing in the book of Zephaniah. uh, Theme. It's the biggest theme in the book of Zephaniah. And we read about it in Zephaniah 1, verses 7 and 9. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day the Lord's sacrifice, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son and those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold and fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. The day of the Lord occurs in two ways. It has a nearness, a nearness in the prophecy, meaning it happens immediately, and it has an ultimate fulfillment at the end of the time, end of the time fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And initially, we see that the day of the Lord occurred when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, that Judah was uh, prophesied that they would be destroyed, and that the great day, the day of the Lord, happened for them when they were taken over by Babylon in 597 B.C. David Baker has a very nice quote that gives us an idea of what the day of the Lord means. He says, The multifaceted nature of the day of the Lord, of day of Yahweh, is presented in the rest of this book, this book being Zephaniah. It's a day of judgment and a day of hope. It's a day specifically relevant to God and his covenant people, but also of significance to, for other nations. It's a day of historical fulfillment which has happened in 597 B.C. when Judah was taken over, but it's also of eschatological and apocalyptic expectation, meaning that there is a hope at the end of the tunnel. It's a day when Yahweh will act in all of his justice and righteousness, judgment and loving mercy. He alone is at the center of the stage, and therefore it's his day, the day of the Lord. It came upon Judah in 597 B.C., And we also find that its final fulfillment comes to us at the end of all things. And we know because of Zephaniah and other prophetic books and other prophetic books both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that the ultimate day of the Lord brings us great hope. It brings us great hope. And we see in this book, in Zephaniah, even in this dark place where Judah is told of their sin, They're told of God's wrath. They're told of the coming of the day of the Lord. At the very end, they're presented with a great hope. A great hope. 
So I'd like to invite you to come out of your somber mood, come out of uh, a deep and dark place, and perhaps think of something joyful, uh, perhaps bring to mind a hope you have, or excitement, or happiness, as we look at hope. We look at the hope presented in Zephaniah. So I'd like to read for us uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, the very last seven verses of Zephaniah. And you can hear within it a shift in his prophetic word where he's, he shifts from darkness and destruction to the Lord of everything, promising something better. He writes, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. I mean, think of that. That in, con- in contrasted to what Zephaniah had prophesied earlier in the book, where he prophesied the complete reversal of creation and the destruction of everything. So now here at the end, in chapter 3, he says, The Lord has taken away your punishment. There is hope even in the midst of destruction. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, don't fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. As we saw in the day of the Lord prophecy, we see that prophecy most, most often has an immediate fulfillment, meaning that the prophet is speaking to something that's going to happen very soon, and that was the destruction of Jerusalem. But also it has a future fulfillment, something that's being promised uh, at the end of the days or sometime in the future. And the future fulfillment here is incredibly powerful and beautiful. The Lord, Zephaniah says, speaking for the Lord, he says, Never again will you fear. He says that he will deal with all who oppress you. Remember, the, the Israelites had lost everything. They had lost land, their land. They had lost their temple where they could worship God properly. They had lost the capacity to follow the law and to do as the law of Moses had told them to do because they couldn't meet in the temple because it was destroyed. And yet God says here that he'll deal with all those who oppress you. Thinking of Israel having lost their land, God tells them that he will rescue and gather them. That once again they will be a nation. And that he'll give them honor and praise. And that he'll restore 
their fortunes. We come at the end of this with great hope. With great hope that life isn't always going to be really terrible for Israel. That God is going to restore them and bring back the things that he had promised. And so we know the hope of Israel here. And so I think a good thing to ask is what is the Christian's hope? Well, certainly we have everything promised and secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus truly came, he truly died, and he truly raised from, rose from the grave and defeated death. And scripture tells us that he sits at the right hand of God, which means that he sits in judgment and that he sits in authority, ruling over the earth. And yet, we look at the earth and we say, man, everything is not right. There's a lot going on that's wrong. And so, what's our hope? Well, our hope is in a God who fulfills his promises. Our hope is in a God who will bring judgment and who will bring peace, who will bring unity, who will bring justice to those that aren't currently experiencing it. A similar promise to us comes at the end of the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21 where John is prophesying about the end of all things. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here we see in this passage a great hope, that God promises us a day where there will be no more mourning, where there be, be no pain and no suffering, where God will dwell within us and his justice and righteousness will will extend to the ends of the earth. We won't suffer with these pains that we have now. We won't have to the the just the injustice that we see here on earth or the disunity or the disharmony will be away because God will dwell. So what is promised about the future? We have a promised future with Jesus Christ. So my final question for you this morning is, who's this message for? Who's this message for? Sometimes we can read a book like Zephaniah and look at the sins of the nation of Judah and say, man, they, they were going buck wild. They were crazy. I'm glad I'm not like them. Or, I'm glad I, didn't, I don't live in Old Testament times, and we can move on. But I think we lose the message of this book, which is that God is a God of hope. Even when he is bringing to light the sins of Judah and saying, look at the totality with which you've gone wrong. And Judah has the opportunity to repent, and yet they don't repent. And so God brings his wrath upon them. 
And he brings their day of the Lord by having Jerusalem fall. He is still a God of hope. He doesn't end the message with the day of the Lord is coming and then it comes. He says the day of the Lord is coming and yet I promise you hope is in the future. Our God is a God of hope. So friends, center point, this book of Zephaniah is for anyone in need of hope. Anyone in need of hope. I think as we look at the world today, we see, uh, we see the coronavirus affecting everyone. We see injustices and we see racial injustice within the nation and we see disunity within our nation and we see uh, just a constant uh, overflowing of negative media stuff. We may be tempted to say that there's just no hope. I remember when 2020 first, when March first came around, coronavirus happened, I was like, man, could I just sit out 2020 and wait for this one to be over? But that's not the right response. That's not the response of Zephaniah. God gives us hope, even when it feels like there's no hope to be had. So friends, whatever is happening in your life, whether... It's 2020 that is affecting you and making you just feel like there's no hope. Or perhaps you do have hope. And I would pray that Zephaniah encourages you to remember that we have a God of hope. One who promises and can keep the promise to make all things right. And one who draws us to himself, even when he is bringing sin out in our life. And would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a God of hope. That you don't leave us uh, wanting, but that you give us all that we need and all that we could ever ask for. God, we pray as we reflect on your message to Zephaniah that we would hear your message to us. That you are a God of justice. That you are gracious and merciful that you bring about your wrath and that you are also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God, we pray that we would know that you are a God of hope and that we would cling to that hope this week. In your son's name we pray, amen.